Hello everyone and welcome back to the Arts Insider Podcast. This week, Mark and I sat down over Zoom to speak with two really special guests. I'm of course talking about Jenna Donnelly and Ethan Lewis Maltby. Jenna Donnelly and Ethan Lewis Maltby have been writing together as lyricist and composer for several years, creating completely original cinematic musicals. In 2016, their World War I musical, The Battle of Boat, was premiered by the National Youth Music Theatre. The show was published by Theatrical Rights Worldwide, and it's been performed all over the world. Meanwhile, independently, Ethan's music has been performed internationally. He created the percussion shows Noise Ensemble and Drum Chasers, which was narrated by Stephen Fry, and has scored for cinema, television, video games, and for major sporting events such as the FA Cup and Rugby Union. Jenna Donnelly is a lyricist and writer of platinum-selling records across the globe, and has collaborated with artists on major record labels such as Sony, Virgin, and Warner. Her work also extends into primetime television, including music for major ITV shows. But together, this duo created The Battle of Boat. And why that show is special to us is because it's the show that our senior Skelmersdale performers are working on on a Wednesday night, with the show going to stage in just a few weeks' time. We were able to sit down with Jenna and Ethan and pick their brains about how they started to work together as a composer and lyricist duo, but also pick their brains about their show, which is currently our show, and get their insight into the wonderful world of the Battle of Boat. They provide some brilliant insight in a great episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's edition of the Arts Insider Podcast. Maybe Ethan, if we sort of start with you, give us a little bit of a a little bit of background instead of your background and you say how we how we got to this point. Um sure. Yeah, well, I suppose um the best way of me framing this is just to talk about how uh I started working with Jenna uh, in a lyrical sense, um, which was basically I you know, studied at university as a, I wanted to be a filmmaker. That was my primary thing. But I soon discovered that I was more interested in how they sounded, uh, the films, than how they necessarily looked and sort of switched my focus then to composition. Um, and then I ended up writing this um, percussion show, which is basically a bit like, if you remember Stomp, and it was called Noise Ensemble, and, it, and we toured it. It toured around the UK about three or four times. It played on Blue Peter. And when that show sort of finished, I was sort of given the opportunity to write a new version. But I wanted to take it a different way because it was very much a bit like a cabaret with percussion. And I decided that the thing it was missing was a story. So um, I came up with a new sort of concept, which is called Drum Chasers, which was basically, it's a world where people only communicate through drumming. It sounds weird. It's not as weird as it sounds. And there's no dialogue or anything like that. And it's just these sort of sort of like a Romeo and Juliet, but with drums, I suppose, is what you'd call it. But I also thought that it needed some kind of a narrator, if you will, that just came in maybe once or twice just to clarify the story, just to help ground people. But I'm not really a writer in that sense. And so I spoke to Jenna, who I'd been playing in bands with and, and always been very impressed with her her songs and uh, and and things I, I said to her look this is the situation what do you think about writing some verse for it so it actually you know and I think I think I can't remember if it was your UI that came up with the idea of it rhyming just being you know they might give it a sort of fantastical fairy tale vibe 
So um, Jenna set about writing this. I gave her the sort of idea of the story and she was set about writing this amazing five minute long prose, which kind of gave the backstory of the situation, the characters and all this kind of stuff. We didn't know at the time that the narrator we managed to get to do it was Stephen Fry. Oh, wow. So um, we ended up going to, you know, London to a studio and recording Stephen Fry doing this um, thing, which was, which was brilliant. And I was sitting there pretty awestruck and you know starstruck by the whole thing but jenna was sitting there picking up picking him up on his pronunciation of her text <laughs> which was quite funny so yes yeah, so that's really where the first thing we did to, together as sort of you know composer and and lyricist um we then started thinking about writing something next in in theater because you know i'm we're both in this sort of strange situation i i love musical theater but i really dislike most musicals mm -hmm. so it's it's strange we're much more both film people and so we were kind of like, if we can bring that into musical theatre, and I think when it comes to something like Boat, the, one of the best compliments we ever get is that it's a musical for people who don't like musicals. It doesn't rely on the sort of tropes of musical theatre, especially. We sat and we, you know, we came up with a story and we researched the story and all that kind of stuff. And that's that's really where it where it came from. So that that is my sort of best way of explaining where we where we've come from, I suppose, from my perspective. And Jenna, what, what about what about you? How did you? Obviously, you heard how you, you you met Ethan, but what's your background? Give us a little bit of a, a an idea of that. Yeah, I was kind of brought up going to school and music and drama and the arts, not really being something that was kind of taken seriously. It's like, oh, that's very nice that you have an interest in that, but um, you know, don't study in it. Don't don't do that. So I actually ended up going initially to study design, product design but find out very quickly that uh, that was not making me very happy. And so I kind of eloped from that uh, degree and went and studied music and studied uh, yeah, BA music. And that's where I met Ethan, so university, and uh, realized that kind of really my heart belonged to writing songs. You know, so I was a performer and very interested in everything to do with music production, but really writing songs is where I, find I just I could just do it all day every day loved working with people love working with different ideas and I was kind of you know really liked musicals and in, in the background you know uh, I obviously knew a lot of some of the big musicals but I wasn't a very regular regular you know theater goer uh, even though I lived in England at the, at the time my parents weren't the kind of people um I didn't think they could really kind of afford to take us in to see some of the big kind of shows. So um, a lot of it was just in the background. And then when I met Ethan, I you know knew that he had written musicals and had this kind of background. And like he said, he approached me about doing the uh, this almost kind of like poem. And I think at the time I said, really, do you think do you think I could do that? And, you know, I write songs, you know, do you, you know, are you sure? So we gave it a go and it, it seemed to work. And then kind of following on from that, it just kind of seemed that we seem to communicate really well. So Ethan would say, you know, I want something kind of like this and I would bring something to him. And then he'd be like, yeah, can we tweak that little bit? Um, and I think at, at first I thought, oh no, I'm doing a terrible job. You know, he keeps on having notes on my lyrics. But um, but I soon found out it was kind of the opposite. You know, you seemed to quite like some of the stuff I was bringing. Um, and so we started to come up with with ideas, didn't we? I think that that's kind of brought us up to that point just before Boat was written. We were thinking, right, well, what, what could we do? What should we do, you know, as, as a fully fledged musical and not mean just coming in to do a few words for a section of the show? 
Yeah, I, I want to. I'm so fascinated with that because one of the some of these questions that we'll we'll sort of weave into this conversation have come via the cast as well. Like, so it's obviously a living, breathing kind of like entity now. And one of the things we we were so interested in is, it, you know, in such a modern world with so many things to talk about, there's so many things that we could write about, you know, into the AI now and all of this kind of stuff. Why, why when you you set about writing a, a you know a, a two act musical, did you guys start with go all the way back to 1914? What what was what? Why that? In all honesty, it was. One of the things, it's very difficult to get new musicals on because we have we don't have the finances to be able to get the rights to a known property, and yet known properties seem to be the only things that get made at the moment. I think it was a local theatre uh, had a youth group, and I went and met with them about, you know, maybe doing something for them, and they were moderately interested, um, but they were like, well, what's it going to be about? And at the time, it was the build-up to the centenary of World War One, and I was thinking, well, maybe there's something about World War One that we could do that would be a... A starting point do we have anything to say about that and so i went and met with a historian who was a specialist in in world war one and i was talking to them and they and they said something which sort of stuck me which is they said the one thing that doesn't get covered in a lot of media when it comes to world war one is um the home front what happened with generations of men went off to fight leaving their you know children and their wives and their sisters and all their mothers all at home uh, and what happened to them and uh, and that kind of got me thinking. Okay, well, what about what children were doing during World War One? On you know, in in England, whilst their relatives were away, and that was the sort of thing that sparked the idea. And then the other thing that sparked the idea was the historian also mentioned something about the the Battle of the Somme film, and how the film was put out very much as a morale boost for the people back in in uh, England, and yet he said that a lot of them had the opposite reaction to what the government were hoping, which is that, that they were actually horrified by what they were seeing. And so that then started getting us thinking, well, what if we had some some kids who, who were kind of without their fathers, uncles and grandfathers, whatever, who see this film and actually they have that reaction. They sit there thinking, well, this is horrific. We didn't know that's what they were having to put up with, you know. And um, even though it was obviously sanitised version of the Battle of the Somme, which was like, pretty much the greatest loss in the entire war, the loss of life in the in the entire war um, was in that battle. And then, you know, thinking, well, what kids imagination is going to go with that? And they might start thinking, well, what if we don't win this war? What if they arrive here? What would we do? So it kind of, that's sort of really where it came from. So it very much came out of firstly, you know, well, if we could find a, if we're going to write something, we don't want it just to sit on our hard drives. We want to put it in front of an audience. How are we going to do that? Well, a youth group might be a, might be interested, and and that's really where it came from. Now and then, the youth group weren't interested at that point. I think they had a change of leadership and all that stuff, and then we were like, well, what do we do now? Um, so that's when we decided we'll we'll try pitching it to the National Youth Music Theatre. So I thought it was brilliant when Ethan, you were mentioning how the there is an influence for film and filmmaking that is kind of connected with the musical. Why I thought it was brilliant was because in the whole rehearsal process, I cannot count how many times someone has said how it feels really filmic. Mm. And I suppose a question for both of you, maybe starting with you, Jenna, is are there any films that you feel have influenced or inspired the musical? 
for a minute there, I thought you were going to say, you know, what films have inspired you musically? And Ethan knows about this about me, as I am a massive fan of James Horner and Titanic. I don't think when it came to when it came to Boat, we, Ethan and I really appreciate very similar composers, and so we would talk about the scores for particular films and how this was done really well. But I, I don't think there was any particular film, was there, Ethan, that that inspired the palette or anything like that. I think at the time, it, to, to us, it was quite an original approach in just approaching a music like a film. And we didn't kind of hone in on a particular thing. What do you think? Was there anything that inspired you from your side? Um, no, not, not nothing that jumped out. I think, again, the filmic thing comes from the fact that I remember the first time I met Jenna, there was a group of people talking about their what musicians had inspired them. And they're all talking about current pop acts or whatever. And Jenna was the only person who said, I really like James Horner and Thomas Newman, and who are both film composers. And Thomas Newman is in particular is my my hero. He did the music for films like Wall-E and Finding Nemo, but uh, Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty. For for someone to mention him, I was kind of like, wait, someone knows who Thomas Newman is, and that was you know quite surprising. And of course, James Horner as well. So, um, as a composer, musically, all my inspiration has come from film composers, from you know John Williams in you know, when I was a kid hearing Star Wars for the first time, but but also probably more so James Horner, who as a kid listening to Krull and Battle Beyond the Stars and Willow and those kinds of things. And then musically, this, this sh- the show is closest to something like Braveheart in, in terms of the music than uh, anything. And then, you know, Jenna being a huge fan of Titanic and specifically the music from Titanic. I don't know if you've noticed in the in the score, there's a dedication. It's It says uh, for J.H., uh, I think on the first page, and that was because um, James Horner died in an um, airplane accident uh, in about 2016, so literally just as we'd finished writing it. And Jenna had been to see Titanic live and see him, uh, and then t- about two months later he he died tragically um, in a plane crash. So we were both really cut up about that because he's he he in particular had been a real influence on both of us. So so he brought us together really as as musicians and creatives, and so yeah, we felt like in our small way that would be our tribute to him we had a scene uh, it, it, it makes so much sense now when you talk with that about about film and and, and that because it did feel very much like that and we, we did a scene we were workshopping the the actual idea and the concept and we've done i mean i've probably directed 60 70 musicals maybe and, and you're talking every single classic you can imagine you oliver cats legally blonde you, you know you name it and to be honest, I, I, you get into a point where they're becoming a little, not boring because the cast changes, and but it, it just a craving something new. And obviously when we, we, we were workshopping the, the concept of, of it, we did the scene with the sea is angry. So we set up this little, these little boats in the, in the space that we've got. And the kids kind of explored the, the notion of this scene. And then we added the music at the end so we just said we're just going to play this underscore now as you guys and and it was so like it was such a transformation it was it was bizarre well it wasn't bizarre it was like you felt massively overwhelmed by it it felt epic it had this huge kind of and so you 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 kind of yeah you'd added an underscore like a filmic underscore to a theatrical scene and it had completely and utterly changed the game for everybody which was a a, just a triumph for me because i 
yeah, we were so used to hearing a very specific sound for, for musicals mm. and it just was not that at all. Uh, and for someone, Joe and I both share this, we, we don't like being predictable or doing the same thing. So do, doing this for us has been has been so, so different. And I remember, Ethan, you said to me, oh, I actually told the kids actually, they said, I spoke to one of the composers who said that this is a musical for everyone who doesn't like musicals. And everyone was like, yeah, I get, I don't know why, they, yeah, I get that. And I, mm. I don't even know what that means, but it was like, mm. we somehow we somehow got it. It was very interesting when we brought the show to NYMT and uh, they kind of workshop it because they know it's an original work, which is kind of a privilege in a way because the talent there is is outstanding. And, and we were really, really grateful to kind of receive the feedback and, and workshop it with them. And we were kind of being asked questions that, we're kind of looking at looking at each other, thinking, "What? We don't understand this." You know, where's your where's your "I Want" song? You know, where is that? Whether it's supposed to be here and it's not here. You know, we were kind of thinking, "Is it a bad thing that this show doesn't kind of tick all those kind of typical boxes, or is it actually a really a good thing?" Since but you know, we've we've explored other ideas and and thought, you know, should we kind of um, you know try those usual things or how a musical usually sounds? We've just kind of found that it just it didn't really quite work. Um, for us as a duo, did it? We just always found ourselves going back to this cinematic um, film approach. So it, I guess, you know, it might be wrong, but uh, but you know, it just feels right to us. I think at the end of the day, as a as a creative of any variety, whether you're a songwriter or composer or a director, or whatever, the worst thing you can do is to try and not be honest with yourself. You know, at the end of the day, if we try to write something in a style that's not us, then it's never going to be any good. You know, all you can do is write what you write and hope that there's an audience for it somewhere. I, th I think for us though, as well, like we, uh, maybe it's just the timing was right because we, we've done, as I say, I've done so many shows with so many different people um, from, from young casts as in infants to adults as well. And, and this is just so different. And, and to me, it's not, it's not a thing of like, Oh well, this is a bit too. To me, it's brilliant because it it's so unlike other things. Um, and it, you know, it, it for the for the cast as well for our cast is is so it's such a different challenge for them as well. So yeah, I think like it's a play with music is is one of the is what someone has actually has said quite a lot in 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 the process of of doing it. Something that I was really interested to speak to you both about is looking at I suppose the messages in the musical and to ask you whether you want people to take away any particular message when they come to see the show. Throughout the show, you get the theme that kids are underestimated. Go to school, carry, carry on, there's nothing you can do. All of this is going on in the background, but there's no way you can have any influence over it. Your kids, you know, kids should be seen and not heard. Um, and one of the things I love about the show is that it, it's always seen through their eyes. There's no adult to come in and contextualise it. So even the, you know, the recruitment scene, it's all done without adults, even though there would be adults present, we see it through their eyes. So I think the main message, I suppose, that through the lyrics, I hope that people would take away is that um, children have so much power um, and they shouldn't be underestimated they shouldn't underestimate themselves in what they can do in how they can influence and how even just coming together like they did you know they, they managed to get that message 
you know, I think probably in the back of their minds, you know, they were all, you know, thinking, are we really going to do this? Can we actually build a boat? Can we actually take it to sea? And they actually, you know, end up doing it. But it, it's that thing where they, I, I love that thing at the end where even though they think that they failed, they, they really haven't at all. So you, it's that message of don't think that your voice doesn't mean anything just because you're young. Um, not at all. How about you, Ethan? I suppose the simple thing is that it's about hope. And that's the message we wanted to get across that by people coming together, they they can create hope. And um, it's really, it's been interesting because it's, it's been, um, it's gone on a few times in America and we get a lot of really positive feedback from it out there. And I, f I feel like we do live in pretty um, fractious times. The world has never been so divided, it seems, because of, I think, you know, social media and the internet and on issues, it's, it, there's never sort of middle ground anymore. And, and I feel like in America, especially after the, the Trump thing, um, that country is so divided, I suppose like us after Brexit, that they, they were enjoying seeing something where the innocence of children coming together to do something positive and and uh, and and that's and people seem to really respond to that. Um, so yes, yeah, so essentially, it was always meant to be a story of hope because some I think was it the original director of the NYMT production said to us, "I'm just trying to find a way of making this show work when basically a bunch of children repeatedly fail for two hours." <laughs> and um, you know, and and that was the that was the difficulty is that how do you give it that ending that that means that that was okay that getting out there and doing something. Even if it fails, you just keep picking yourself up and, and going again is, is the important part of it. Um, so the message of, of sort of hope and and not underestimating children, I think, is the key thing. It's interesting you say that, and it makes so much sense because we we talk to them a lot in in finding that about COVID. And w one of the things that I I found through COVID was I, I'm sick of hearing from ad from adults who, who have all the answers to this. Or they think they have the answers, whereas the and the kids you never heard from the kids at all. And obviously, when we were working with kids, we we were very much like we ended up doing a project, which was it was, it was like an enterprise project where the kids were coming up with ideas to to raise money and various other things. But it was basically like we want to hear from the kids, you know what I mean? And I think that when we when we started to explore the show, it it, it really felt like that. We were saying like, remember in COVID when no one was listening to you. And, and you've all had your own thoughts and views and ideas. So we, we have actually been there. So that's certainly coming through from, from our, uh, from our side. Hmm. My, my, my question, I, I guess, is, is about co-writing. And obviously you guys have very different skill sets and different ideas. Obviously I get the idea of a composer and a lyricist, but when you're creating characters and you both actually obviously wrote the dialogue and the play you've wrote the book what talk us through that like co-writing process how, how does that how does that work i can imagine there's with anything there's difference of opinion people want to take certain things how certain characters speak and the language that they use how do you kind of agree on disagree how, how, just talk us through that kind of process how, how it works i mean i th i think we are truly lucky because i feel like we've we really disagreed um in the process it's sort of we just it was just one of those things where first off it involved a lot of cups of tea if i remember correctly i was gonna say i think you made about 50 million cups of tea <laughs> yeah um but essentially that our process is that we we start with a you know by talking through a very basic 
concept and then we we have a chart that we use which we sort of break down scene by scene what's going to happen and what if the what if any other the subtext of each scene and that kind of thing and doing character breakdowns and, and all that kind of stuff and it is just a very good sort of back and forth and um you know i respect jenna as a storyteller um as you know as much as a lyricist so it's kind of um you know we just bounced off each other very well and yeah we've never really had any great big arguments or anything like that i don't remember ever i think the only problems we've ever had is if like wanting lyrics to fit the music and i, I want her greatest lyrics ever there was one scene in, in boat that lyrically i think you had to rewrite 30 odd times because every time i was going it's not it's not enough it's not right it's not getting the thing and i think that was pretty frustrating for you but then you know you nailed it uh in the end and um, what was what was that scene ethan it's basically the last scene the thing that they the group all sing together it's the it we, was the we made the step we made our stand and we made it as one uh That's that it. that whole phrase was was rewritten multiple times to just get the the essence of the feeling of the show across um I rewrote it so many times that you know when you sometimes think about a word and or you say it over and over and it starts to lose meaning mm -hmm. and it starts to become almost like almost silly uh, to say it out loud that's how I felt about that section I was kind of calling Ethan up and saying I don't even know what this means anymore I don't even know what I'm writing anymore mm -hmm. and I was just throwing lines and lines out but you know, most of the time, it's not like that. One of the things that Ethan really um, likes, and and I really enjoy writing this way as well, is that Ethan really doesn't like lyrics that couldn't really be said in a conversation and make sense. So obviously, there's some amazing lyrics written that are very poetic and and um, metaphorical and all this kind of thing. But if something doesn't make sense, if it's said out loud just in a conversation, and um, Ethan won't like it. Uh, so I had very kind of clear kind of direction in terms of the lyric. I think one of the things that also made the writing very easy for us is that before we even started writing musicals, one of the things about our friendship is that we would talk about films and we would talk about stories and, you know, give like little reviews about films and say, wasn't it great when this happened? Wasn't that rubbish when that happened? So when we started talking about our stories and the stories we were kind of coming up with, um, we could do it at speed because it was almost kind of, we were reviewing our own ideas over and over and again and again with no ego at all. So we'd just say, oh yeah, that'd be really cool. And what if this happened? No, 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 that doesn't work. But, but what about this? It was that kind of quick, wasn't it? Yeah. And I think that's the other thing is it's sort of, it is just, I mean, you know, I'm always just blown away by what Jenna comes back with. I mean, I remember there's a scene in the show, no spoilers, but the song's called Funeral for a Friend. And I remember sending the music over, um, which at the time I think was just a, a piano part or something to, to Jenna and saying, you know, you know what the scene is, good luck. You know, and I was just thinking, how is she going to come up with anything that's going to be, that's going to match this and have the right emotion? And then, you know, she sent it back and I didn't, I just read read the lyrics and I was just like, yeah, she's done pretty well there. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, you know, things that I, I would just sit and think, I don't know how you come up with the right, words for this but at the same time i remember there was one scene which i wrote and i sent over to sent the music over to jenna and she just said this is no good this not that it was bad music but it she said you know this doesn't work this is too i think you said this is too disney it was and, and it was a scene called it was a song called vengeance and it was after a couple of the characters are attacked 
I, I'd written something that was a very Disney-like kind of we will have our vengeance type thing, and and Jenna said this is this is going the wrong way, and this is, you know, and I was a bit like, oh. but at the end of the day, she was right, so it was like, okay, let's let's start again with it. So I think yeah, we've always been pretty good at, at offering criticism and respecting each other's opinions on that, and most of the time, I think the the other person is always right when they say to the other person that needs to change. I think you that's interesting that you, you guys talk about, you know, both of you or. Ethan, like that's a very specific style that you want things that that can be said in conversation rather than you're too metaphorical or too yeah too you know we're doing a uh, we've been studying or looking at with students recently the work uh, of Anias Mitchell and Hades Town, which is oh, yeah. very that um, which is great and it, it like I said it's a brilliant amazing show but it's you you can't be you, you have to you have to be very clear on which which road you're going down and it sounds like you guys were were, were on the same on the same road otherwise there would be an, a whole a whole lot of conflict i think wouldn't there mm. yes definitely definitely wouldn't yeah fun. no um and yeah and it's and it's absolutely not to take away from anything from from those people who do use those kind of rhyming structures and all that kind of stuff but it just wasn't what we felt uh we wanted for this for this show, I suppose it was that trying to get as much naturalism in it as possible, which again is why there's only two songs that are kind of standalone. You could take them out, you know, um, which is, you know, Helpless and uh, Resolve. They're really the only two sort of standalone songs. I mean, Helpless was originally just a solo, so then it could definitely work like that. But it, but, um, it was a suggestion of director at NYMT that it become a duet. And yeah. I like, I like that. I, I do like the idea that, that both of them f are feeling the same feelings, albeit in different contexts. So, you know, spoiler alert, but you, I, I, the, the big thing for me, Ethan was, and Jen, I'm so interested in this, and I, I don't know how, how, I'd love to hear the conversation. You guys have dealt with, we're talking, you can't talk about war, particularly the Battle of the Somme and that time. You can't talk about war without talking about death. And that's a huge theme death for, for young people, for everybody. And I, I think the way that you guys deal with death in the show is so, it, it's, it feels to me very symbolic. And um, the, the lyrics of the song you just mentioned, Funeral for a Friend, kind of underpin that um, really sort of symbolicness of it. And I, I wonder, I'd just love to know what the conversation was about about that whole conversation of death and how you're going to deal with it. I'll say this and then I'll kick it over to Jenna to talk about those lyrics. But I, I, I know that we said that what we wanted was for the kids at home to sort of deal with similar situations to what was going on for people who were fighting um, in France, uh, within reason, of course. So they, they deal with oppression, they deal with death in their own way. Um, and they deal with sort of pushing back against tyrannical behavior and that kind of thing. So, so throughout it, we knew we wanted to have something where that would happen. The particular events that lead up to Funeral for a Friend came from the fact that the second William gets accepted in to the army, I think the whole audience go, oh, well, he's going to die. You know, so in a way, that was a subversion of expectations that we thought, well, we need them to deal with death, but it can't be William. And we can't randomly turn around and say, oh, well, it's one of their dads or it's one of their uncles because we haven't met those characters. I mean, one bit of a dialogue uh, that I'm 
quite proud of is Gladys does a speech when they're on the boat and she puts them, there's a line there where she says, she's talking about her dad and she says, and I know he's up there and he's proud of us or something like that. And I really like the fact that we don't make a big deal out of the fact that her dad has clearly gone to war and has, has been killed. But we just throw it in there to show that this is something that the kids are all having to deal with is, is losing. Cause, cause that was the thing that the historian said to me was about the lost generation of, of, of men that, that we lost because of, of the world war one in particular. Mm -hmm. So there was that element. So we knew all of that going in, but this is why I say, you know, I handed over the music for the song for Beagle. And that's why I was just, when, when the lyrics came back, I was just gobsmacked. I was just like, I just don't know how, how she came up with these, these terms, you know, what was it? Goodbye is not the end though. We part, we have our memories. I was just like, what amazing sentiment. It does me. So I'm going to throw it over to Jenna now so she can tell us all about her process. Cause I have no idea how she does it. Hello, how can I follow that? <laughs> lovely. It sums it up perfectly. Um, well, there were, there were a couple of things I think, I think with that, first of all, you're absolutely right. The theme of death was, is something we had to touch upon the lost generation, you know, through the, through the war and the fact that they just, all these people, these young people just disappeared and all these kids were watching, you know, their brothers and their dads um, just disappear. And at that time, you know, they would know that they had, you know, passed on, but they wouldn't necessarily have been given any detail. Of course, they just suddenly disappeared. And so there was kind of two things here. I was, first of all, whenever I was little, I always wanted a, a pet. So that was, that was my background, never got one, sadly. So whenever I, I was kind of tasked with writing this, I, I completely thought I really wanted to have a pet. If I had a pet and I lost that pet, how, how would I feel? And so I made it very personal so, so that immediately, you know, you tap into the emotional side of that. But then I thought about, you know, Beagle is, you could, you could argue he's the funniest character in the show. And, you know, what would, what would he do? And I think unlike, like every, everyone, whether you're an adult or a child, if someone close to you passes away, you know, you're just absolutely not ready for it. You're nobody is ever ready child or adult for something like that. And in a position of, you know, standing in the funeral for your friend, what would spill out? What would be the rawest kind of words that you would use? And you'd have to be choking back your own tears, but trying to do that person justice. So I literally, I remember that, that day when Ethan gave me the track, I went home and pretty much wrote most of it straight away in kind of one sitting and and my flatmate kind of walked past me and I was just there typing in tears and she was like you all right I was like yeah I'm just I'm just ready <laughs> and that's when I, I did I did forward that on to you and I said I think I don't want to say too soon but I think you'll like it just because I just you know I really wanted to get that kind of rawness you know Beagle at his kind of most vulnerable moment and having to stand up and be brave and again, that's another theme in the show about having to stand up and be brave when you really don't think you're strong enough. So Francis has to do that. Beagle has to do that. Um, all of them in some kind of way have to kind of be strong. Even that speech you mentioned, Ethan, with Gladys at the end, she had to be strong, even when this all this thing was going on in the background. I think I think it's one of those though, like like when we when we sort of put it up on its feet, the scene, and it, and we were the kids heard it and it was like, oh my goodness, this, this has happened. And there was this sense of like the, the, the pet that we, we speak about 
the, the death is so so wrong you know what i mean and it's like there's an innocence that, that there's a cat the character has such an innocence and there's an injustice there and it didn't it, it, it kind of summed up what was happening overseas it, it, it elsewhere and I, I remember stood talking to students saying you need to look at the lyrics you need to see this says everything about the war in its biggest sense but through the eyes of of a, of the kids and and it was like the penny drop moment where everyone was like oh I'm these lyrics now that they have a double me that they have a double me you know we can talking about death in its in its much much bigger sense I just think you have done that um incredibly well um and that, yeah it's probably my favorite scene in the show albeit far and away the saddest <laughs> in terms of that in terms of planning out that this is going to be the emotional low point and have some resonance with some key themes at this point in the show and later on we'll encounter encounter different themes and also how will certain story arcs or storylines resolve I'm really interested to ask you both about when in the process of creating the show you'd figured out the ending of the piece and whether that came early on or whether you kind of discovered the ending as the process went on. Um, we had a we had a fairly clear idea, didn't we, that it was going to be that though they didn't successfully get to France because of course what on earth were they going to do if they got there <laughs> yeah you know it'd be insane um so we knew that that's how it was going to be I think I think originally the ending was a bit more verbose we we had a whole explanation of how there had been a reporter that had heard about the boat thing and how they'd written this and it had gone to the Ministry of Defense and they'd sent it and in the end that all just got thinned right down um because you know it was just doing research and hearing that there were about 60 thinking of 60 plus trench newspapers that were printed so the idea of a sort of newspaper in the trench might seem odd but that that was you know a thing that was a legitimate thing that happened so that was all fine and and that's where it was and then when we workshopped it with nymt they basically said that the ending was lacking something the director said i just can't get the ending we need something else in there and i remember we were tearing our hair out like well what what can it be what could it be and then jenna said gripper should join up and I was like, oh, that's amazing. That's genius. Now, you could argue that there is no there is no coming back for a character that that murders an animal, you know, and but I suppose in this way it just comes a small way towards it that he he shows that he has overcome his issues and is now going. The ending really did divide the group at, at when we started because I think we were we were talking before, we were so used to this is there's either a rec this reconciliation of everyone the gripper becomes like a great guy or you know it just it just we were like so some people were like oh i thought this had happened or he needs to william has to die or whatever it may be i think everyone wanted a yeah a proper conclusion but i i love the fact that it, that it's it just life went on it, it was real i remember that one of the i can't remember who it was but it was someone in theater came up to ethan and i and said I love, you know, I love the show, but I don't understand why you didn't take it further. Like, why couldn't they have made it over to France and then they could have teamed up with some soldiers and taken down some sort of thing? And at the time, we're like, yeah, yeah. And then we had a conversation about it afterwards. And it's that thing of it just, it just wouldn't happen in real life. And one of the, the things that now I'm kind of, you know, I'm not older, but, you know, I'm in my 
30s now, late 30s, and um, I realised that life is is all about realising that it's all these kind of little things that move you forward and sometimes things don't spectacularly end. You know, like if, if all of us look at what we've done in our lives and, you know, what's happened, it's kind of a series of like many successes and many, many failures and you don't realize but you actually like keep moving forward and keep moving forward so i think it was a really kind of not a lesson but i, I guess a nice message at the end of it was worth it because you made an impact you didn't make it to france you didn't you know make it across the water all these efforts that you did but you did something and that something is going to change things moving forward so um so it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because you know getting that feedback of Oh, why couldn't it have been a much more kind of, you know, spectacular ending? There's two other things I'd add to that is that um, there's a joke in Blackadder Goes Forth, if you've ever seen that. I love, um, I love Blackadder, yeah. I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but there's a joke where they say that they think the war is over. And I think it's in the final episode. And one of them says, ah, oh, the Great War, 1914 to 1916 or 1917 or something like that. And people laugh because they know it's not over. Um, and so because we've set ours in, in 1916, of course, the war was not over. So any resolution at that point would be pointless because we know that it's still going. The other point would be um, that I suppose my favourite filmmaker and film director of all time is an Australian uh, director called Peter Weir. And um, he I always noticed that I think, you know, that essentially he always has a point to his to his films, to his stories. And when he reaches the end of that, when he meets that point, the film ends. There's no long sort of, you know, final scene or anything like that. I mean, example being The Truman Show. Um, you know, in The Truman Show, I remember people saying, but I wanted to see what happened to him once he got out of the show. But that wasn't the point of the, of the film. The film was about his realisation and him getting to leave, not what happened to him afterwards. That would kind of be another film entirely. And it's the same with all of his films from from that to Dead Poets Society, you know, Mosquito Coast, Master and Commander. You know, if you see Master and Commander, it, it doesn't end with the baddies being got and the goodies. It ends with them going, well, let's keep going then. You know, so I suppose there was that as well, that the point of the story was about the children realising that they had a voice and they had power and if they worked together, they could achieve something. It wasn't about resolving the whole thing. And, and maybe that's partly because we do very much live in a world of, at the moment, cinematically of, of superhero movies, where the end, there is a big fight and the baddie is beaten, you know, for the most part, apart from like when they're two parts like Avengers, uh, the last Avengers films, whatever. Do you know what I mean? Which is, which is fine. But this isn't a situation where, you know, these kids weren't going to fix World War One. So, you know, um, that was the thing. We we reached our point to the to the show and and ended it. When we when they're on the boat, people got there was people in our group as we were reading it. They were like, "Oh, they're going to get." And I was like, "Surely not. Sure, surely not." Because the idea of like, if you write as an adult, and I, you know, you, you're writing as adults, where you know you can lose that kind of naivety and that that kind of imagination as as kids who genuinely did believe that this boat would get us all the way there and they would solve the the, the problem this huge political you know worldwide issue the kids felt that they could could solve it you know and and i think that that there's some real charm in that i guess whereas like you say once once it becomes they get there and they like you say they it all becomes a bit like, oh well, no, this is not, this wouldn't happen. And I think everything you've done is like, this could, this could happen if if kids did go out into the to the bay on a boat that they built themselves 
without without any kind of equipment or any thought, they're probably someone's probably going to end up getting injured, mm. <laughs> you know, and that's and that's ultimately what what happens really quickly. Yeah. Can I ask you both, like, what what was your? You guys obviously sit um, in the theatre when it finally goes to the stage, and it's got all of the the audience in, and the the, the lights, and the sound, and the costumes, and and you guys have, have created these these characters that are that never existed before that. How did it feel to to kind of I call it letting the baby go, you know, like let, let, putting putting it out there and just watching it kind of develop itself? How how did that feel? Can you remember that that moment? Um, I mean, I, I cried a lot. <laughs> I won't lie to you, I cried a lot to see it on stage for the first time. You know, that was it was a many many hours of of work. So to see it up there and to see the thing come to life. And again, we were so lucky that NYMT took it on because we were seeing such a top level production. Uh, and obviously, the, the, that version is we then rewrote it to tighten it up a little bit and to clarify a few things. And there were some errors of storytelling that we'd made that weren't apparent until you saw it, you know, in, in the original version, um, the first time we meet Gripper, he's actually um, slapped and belittled by Florence in the very first time you see him. And someone said, your, your big baddie has been taken out by an eight year old girl in the in the first time we meet him, that's he's losing all power straight away. And I was like, that's a really good point. So in the version that you guys are doing that, that doesn't happen. It's sort of William that s stops him. I mean, you know, um, I think he's about to hit someone with a cricket bat, which is ridiculously violent, mm -hmm. um, and, and get stopped. So one of the coolest things has been these the different productions that have happened since then. And really, mostly through internet sleuthing, I find that the productions are happening. And you know, you see photos getting shared on Instagram or Facebook or whatever. And it's just great to see the characters that we created and you see them there, different actors and performers, of course, but you know, which one's which and you can see them and, and that's really fulfilling. And We've been to see a couple of, of the sort of productions since then, and it's always really amazing to see them. Absolutely. There's always a bit, no matter it seems to be what, what production it is, that when they get the boat out and, you know, it's that real just kind of orchestral moment, the weather starts to play up and that's when they really realise they're up against it. For some reason, oh, that always makes me emotional um, and I kind of almost never kind of thought about it and, and till now and i think it's that thing of like for me even though they're in this terrible dangerous situation like they've made it they've done it they're these little group of kids have made a boat out of nothing and they're in the middle of the sea and this storm has come in and i guess it's almost i'm kind of feeling so emotional and proud for the characters i know that sounds really strange but there's something about it in the way ethan wrote the music as well because it really swells up into this big big moment there's something about that i would always get quite emotional when we would say it but all, all the things that ethan mentioned you know pride and emotion and then you know your work brain kind of turns on as well and you think oh is that a, is that line good enough or is that like you know that kind of thing so this this is the sort of last section is we, if we can, we're going to just do a it's more of a quick fire questions that that have come from students as well. Go on, Joe, you can start. I think they have started you off with one of the hardest song uh, questions to ever be asked, which is within the <laughs> musical, which is your personal favorite song and why? Probably helpless. Both versions, the original version that was written, which is kind of a standalone, and then the the new duet. Um, I just love the 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 range that song has. I'm a singer myself, and and so I find myself singing that song all the time. So 
that one. How about you, Ethan? I think uh, Funeral for a Friend uh, for me. Why? Because I think, you know, we're seeing, we've always said that really when it comes down to the characters, I'm like Beagle and Jenna's like Francis, you know, because I'm always making toilet humour jokes and Jenna's much more serious. And um, so, yeah, so I think there's something about seeing a character like Beagle who's so full of life and imagination and and uh, seeing him broken. I don't mean I enjoy seeing him broken, but I think that makes it quite a tender moment. So, um, yeah. And also it's one of those one of those weird songs where I had uh, just got a new keyboard for my studio and plugged it all in and just plonked my hands down on the keyboard and just played three chords and they were the first three chords of that song and I was like wait a minute that might be something okay my, my next question then was is is there a character based solely on someone that you know we named the characters after people that hadn't you know meaning for us you know grandparents and and things like that and that's true nieces yes. and, and things like that um I don't think there was a particular person, was there? No, I don't think there was a particular person. It was just, yeah, just naming-wise, we used grandparents and things like that for their names. But no, there wasn't a, there wasn't any one character that we based anybody on that I could think of. Give us a character each that you that you have named after someone. I suppose the the first one was that um, my first niece and my only niece was is called Frances, and she was born about a year before, I'm trying to remember now, about a year before we wrote Boat. And I remember just thinking at the time, wouldn't it be nice to have a character that she could look up to and be a, a strong a strong character that wasn't a, a princess or a superhero? So that's really where that came from. And then my grandmother and her sister were called Gladys and Sybil, and my grandfather was Jack. So that's where they come from me. And then I think, Jenna, there were some for you, were there? Yeah, so William, both my grandfathers were called William. Yeah, they were just, they were just like William, just very, very good, good, good men, good people, good hearts. So um, I, I was very grateful to Ethan to let me name William, William. Okay, the last couple. So my, my question is is really from, from me to you, which is, what is the one piece of advice that you would give d directors or any director who is going to do this show? Don't worry about the music being complicated because the kids will get it. Yes, that that's a good point. Yeah, we were we were told at one point that we needed to cut certain songs because they were too challenging. The opening of Act Two, for example, because it's all in seven. And I've got to be honest, when I was writing it, I was not thinking, will people be able to sing this? And Jenna, being a phenomenal singer, made it always seem easy. You know, because I would send her over music and then she would write the lyrics and make tweaks to the melodies so that they worked better and stuff. And then she'd sing them and send me back a recording quite often. Um, the other thing is don't change a word of it or a note of it, because we'll be angry, we'll know, and we'll be furious. <laughs> I jest, of course. One of the nice things actually in different productions we've seen, they've had to you know, gender swap certain characters. You know, I, we, we saw a fantastic um, female performer doing playing Beagle. And it worked brilliantly. So, I mean, that those kinds of things, I think, you know, we're very happy for those sorts of things to happen. I mean, I, I, there has, if all the productions I've seen, there's only been sort of one change that a director made or an addition they put in, which I, I really felt was a misstep. You, but, can't, um, you can't leave that there, Ethan. You're going to have to tell me what the misstep was. Oh, it was um, in one production um, I saw in at the end of William's song, Re uh, Resolve, they actually had him grab his gun and go over the top as if he was going over 
into no man's land, gunshots go off and him fall. And then they brought him back at the end when he's doing his final letter and he had his arm in a sling. Well, the problem with that is, that's obviously not in the script, but from an audience perspective, everything that happened after that moment, until we see him again, you're sitting there thinking, did they just kill William? And then, of course, we have the, this is a spoiler for the show, but we had the fake out with Beagle thinking Beagle was lost. Um, so, of course, that then had no weight at all because we were sitting there thinking, so they added another fake in uh, death with a character, which, again, was like, I don't think you needed that. You, do you know what I mean? It, it's, mm-hmm. it's not in the script, and I don't think you needed to see that. I, I didn't see the value in putting it putting it in there. So that was the only thing I've seen where I've really thought, no, that's not. Right. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some productions where they'll, they've put in random bits of ballet during Helpless because they've got a couple of ballet dancers. They've just had them come in and dance. And it's like, okay, I mean, I'm not sure why, but fine. I'm not angry about it. Um, okay, so two two questions. Final one about about Battle of Boat, which is, yeah, what is, what is your hope for this particular show? I believe it deserves and should have a bigger life than it has. The problem I've had is that, you know, it's very difficult to get your work to get in the door with any producer who could take it to the next level and the few that I have managed to get through the door with have basically said the problem is it's all children Mm -hmm. which means we have to quadruple cast and then there's the labor hours like laws in terms of how long they can rehearse for and basically my takeaway from a couple of these sort of conversations is that it would never become a professional production it would never be a thing that ran in the the West End because of the lack of adults. And though I, I feel like in a way that's a little short-sighted because I think you could probably cast it with 18 to 20 year olds who look young. So I, I feel like that's short-sighted, but I understand that it's it's a gamble. Um, so what we've actually done is that we have written it into a film script. Still a, still a musical, but a film musical. And that's been a really interesting process because we've had to make a lot of changes. As soon as you put it on film, you realize kids going to sea in a boat and then the boat being destroyed and them being washed back to sea and them all being in the same place is ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? That's like, you can't stretch the boundaries of, of uh, believability as much on film. Um, and we're working with a, a producer trying to get it turned into a fully fledged movie. I mean, I think this is the sort of show that would be great and could sit on Netflix really well and be one of those sort of hidden gems. Goonies meets the railway children meets a musical sort of thing. And then also I can have a full orchestra doing the music, which would sound super epic. Super epic. Yeah, well, I think definitely that, but we would love to just see it carry on as, as it is and being performed by young people. I love talking, you know, to you guys about the show. I love talking to young people about the show. Um, that's like the biggest reward of, 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 of writing it. It's just like being able to like see young people enjoy playing it and doing it, kind of like taking it much farther than what we'd actually written. They are the ones that like make it funny, make it emotional. Um, so we'd love to just see it carry on and continue to be put on you know, um, that would be awesome. What she said, what she uh, said. Uh, we did say that actually, that that, it, that there's an issue with the cast in terms of the, the fact that it's all kids, but that's what's brilliant about it. The story is about the way that young people deal with the big stuff. And I think that there's always going to be a place for that. We've had big conversations, big, deep philosoph- philosophical conversations around around death and around respect and around loyalty and trust and about... Um, friendship and bullying and all of that we've we've had all of that with with kids 
who can play kids. Normally we've got kids playing adults and there's just no, there's no scope for that in this show. And I think that that, that is exactly what makes it special in mm -hmm. that, in that sense. Would you agree? And the fact that it has this big grown up meaty kind of um, epic film score to go with it, I just think is, is the two things that we, we really enjoy the most, which is as youth theatre directors, it's something that, that we can get our teeth into Hmm. And it certainly gives you that. It certainly gives you that. Well, the other thing we've we've been going backwards and forwards on is the idea of a sequel. Not quite sure how, how that would manifest, but we talked about that when we wrote our next show. We were like, could this be a sequel? And whilst it's it isn't a sequel, all of us all of our musicals are set in a shared universe, like Marvel. So Beagle is in our next show, but it's ten years later, so he's not going by Beagle anymore. But we did talk about the idea of sort of doing an, another show with the same characters a year later or two years later, or, you know, after the war sort of thing. So um, we, we're always thinking about what is the next story we, we want to tell and what could it be and stuff like that. And I think a, a sequel would be interesting, but I mean, I'm not quite sure what it would be. Which kind of leads us on to our final question, Joe, which yeah. which was pretty much that. But... Yeah, it's uh, so our question for for the both of you is, what is the musical that hasn't been created yet, which you would love to see? But that that we would create, or, or potentially, some... not necessarily. Oh, I have many many thoughts on this. It's got it's got to be Apparition Smith, right? Well, yeah. So f from our from our perspective, before Boat, actually, we started writing a show called Apparition Smith, uh, or its full title being Apparition Smith and the Ectoplasmic Fantastic. And I think <laughs> this is our best show that we haven't written. Uh, in that we we've written a handful of songs and we've got the synopsis sorted out. The elevator pitch is it's set in 1850 and it's about a group of traveling con men who go around England putting on fake seances to fleece people of their money. <laughs> and in a particular town, they're doing their typical show and they accidentally unleash an evil spirit into the town. So act two is kind of like Ghostbusters, but in 1850. And it's kind of like a horror-ish I mean, not really horror, but, you know, it's like a horror comedy romance drama. It's kind of everything. The issue being it would be very expensive to put on because it needs special effects for evil spirits magic. and magic, magic and things like that. And the songs we've done for it, I'm really proud of. And I think are some of our best stuff. Um, there is a track called The Graveyard, which is a sort of romantic song. It could be from anything, I suppose. But that is one of my favorite things that I've ever uh, composed. So that that show is something we'd love to go back and 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 finish what we started. It's just that thing of we don't want to write it and have it sit on a hard drive or on a SoundCloud channel. You know, we want to know that it can actually see the light of day. So I suppose that's the show that we'd like to see written and completed. And that's yes, that's one of ours. Thank you so much for both of you. The insight has been not only really fascinating, but but really really useful for for us who. You know, our, our show is a, a couple of months away now. Uh, we're well in the in the throes of, of rehearsal. Um, and obviously, some of this insight has, has, has answered many questions, which, you know, in the in the probably 60, 70 musicals I've ever directed, I've, I've never, ever had the opportunity to sit around with the writers and discuss it. So it's been such a joy. So thank you both. No, thank you for having for your us. Time. No, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much.